What can we learn through a spring stroll through a cemetery? We'll discuss that today on Footnoting History. Hey, this is Elizabeth, and welcome to this episode of Footnoting History. Like many historians and lovers of history, I enjoy walking through cemeteries. I only learned recently that there is a word for people like me, taphophile, one who loves cemeteries or tombstones. Well, I wouldn't say that we history files are necessarily a macabre bunch, although I did choose Oingo Boingo's Dead Man's Party as the song that most described me in eighth grade. No larger issues there, surely. Anyway, I wouldn't say we are a macabre bunch, so much as drawn to the past, and what, in many ways, provides a more direct connection to the past than a cemetery. So, drawn as I am to cemeteries then, I recently strolled through a local cemetery in my adopted metro region of Atlanta, Georgia. Now, when you say cemetery in Atlanta, everyone immediately thinks of the Oakland Cemetery, founded in 1850 as Atlanta's cemetery, and final resting place of many illustrious personages, such as famous golfer Bobby Jones, author of Gone with the Wind, Margaret Mitchell, and several mayors of Atlanta, including Ivan Allen Jr., whose name, at least, will figure back in this story later. But there are, of course, several cemeteries in Atlanta. And the one I want to guide you through is Eastview Cemetery in the neighborhood of East Lake on the east side of Atlanta. Convenient, then. Eastview is only about four miles due east of Oakland Cemetery and pretty much a straight shot down Memorial Drive which runs all the way from downtown Atlanta to Stone Mountain, birthplace of the modern KKK, not to be confused, of course, with the Reconstruction-era KKK. Before I start, I'd like to provide some backstory on this topic and also the research that went into it. As we know, and I'm sure you know, I'm a trained medievalist. I'm used to archives containing manuscripts made out of parchment with words and abbreviated medieval Latin. I foolishly thought that because I was going to be researching relatively recent history, that all that would be required was largely a Google search away. In some ways it was, but in other ways I was actually forced to literally leave my comfort zone as to find the last missing pieces I needed, and to head to not only local neighborhoods, but even to a library. I had to relearn how to use microfilm readers. I also learned how many documents are unable to be viewed for a few more years and or without paying a fee because of privacy and legal issues. Overall, it was incredibly enjoyable, but it also showed me how complacent I've become in assuming everything I might want to know is online. Additionally, as this is largely recent and local history, I reached out to individuals, including those who volunteer with the Eastview Cemetery. The organization's link is with this post on www.footnotinghistory.com. Archivists at Georgia Tech, the Georgia State Archives, and the Atlanta Fulton Public Library and even family members of the deceased, mostly just to let them know that I would be talking about their relative. I had varying degrees of success with these efforts at contact, although as of the recording of this episode, I've received no responses from either the families nor the Eastview Cemetery groups, and I suppose that for the families it would be a little odd to say, hey, or to receive a message that says, hey, I happen to pass your great-great-aunt-cousin's tombstone at Eastview Cemetery, might you want to talk. Anyway, 
Um, I've attempted to piece together a story that I hope isn't just about the Eastview Cemetery or the three people buried there that I'm going to be speaking about, but that of Atlanta in the early to mid-20th century, even Georgia in the early to mid-20th century, potentially the United States in the early to mid-20th century. Are you ready? Good. Eastview Cemetery opened in 1883, and from an incredibly cursory examination of those interned there, it seems to have largely been occupied by white Atlantans, although as people are still being buried there, I assume that is no longer the case, but without checking each grave, I cannot definitively say. When viewing a list of all the grave records for Eastview, 4,044 results are found. When Eastview first opened, the neighborhood of Eastlake did not yet exist. It was still a decade away. By the turn of the century, however, Eastlake, which had attracted the attention of the Coca-Cola family, had begun to boom as an athletic club was built there, the now-famed Eastlake Golf Club, which is home to the final tournament of the PGA. A trolley line had also been put in that helped increase demand for this area about five miles from downtown Atlanta. Why, in 1912, a road was even put in from Ponce de Leon Avenue to Eastlake. And for everyone saying, uh, isn't that Ponce de Leon, not Ponce de Leon? Come to Atlanta, you'll find out. And this road made the neighborhood even more desirable. Adorable little bungalows popped up all over. It was here that legendary golfer Bobby Jones, you'll remember I mentioned a few minutes ago that he's buried at Oakland Cemetery, grew up following the Eastlake Golf Club pro, Stuart Maiden, around the links, and it was from Maiden that Jones always said he got a swing. It is also with Maiden that we begin to meet those buried at Eastview Cemetery, as since his death in 1948, he has rested there. Maiden is perhaps the most famous resident of Eastview Cemetery. By one of the cemetery gates, he has a memorial with a small putting green and bench to mark his memory and place in Atlanta history. Maiden, however, was not an Atlanta native. He was born in Carnestie, Scotland, in 1883, a town home to a large textile mill and the Carnestie golf links. It seems that neither Maiden nor his elder brother James were much interested in working in the textile industry, and instead, like many before and after them, they emigrated to America in the early 20th century. While golf had been a popular sport for centuries in Scotland, it was relatively new in the United States, with golf courses popping up throughout the East Coast only beginning in the 1880s. The expertise of the Maiden brothers, then, was very much in demand. Once here, the Maiden brothers began to teach golf, and it was in Atlanta that Stuart Maiden was followed by a boy who wanted to learn how to copy the Scots golf stroke. It was little Bobby Jones, who was one day go on to be one of the greatest golfers in the history of the game. In Atlanta, Maiden was nicknamed Kilty, in reference to traditional Scottish dress. After World War I and a little of a decade at the East Lake Golf Club, Maiden was replaced by another Scot from Carnestie, William Ogg. Over the course of the 1920s, golf became popular throughout the United States, and Maiden was able to find jobs throughout the country. First, he moved to St. Louis, and then in 1930, he opened an indoor golf school in New York. But eventually, in 1948, he returned to Atlanta to become the golf professional at a new golf course. He died, age 62, on November 4, 1948. In 2016, he was inducted into the Georgia Golf Hall of Fame. And unlike Bobby Jones, who was buried in the Oakland Cemetery, Maiden's final resting place was at the Eastview Cemetery by Eastlake, where he had first worked as a golf pro in Atlanta. Maiden is, as I said, the quote-unquote celebrity, if you will, of Eastview. It would seem, then, that this spot had been chosen, but in fact, Maiden is buried in an unmarked grave, a potter's or pauper's grave. Papers noted his passing, and he had left behind his brother that he had emigrated with and two adult daughters. 
It was not until writing a work on Maiden that Sidney Matthew, the author of the book on Kill to the Kingmaker, linked to in further reading, that Matthew learned that Maiden was interned in a pauper's grave. As a result, he had the commemorative area created that I described above, a stone with Kilty's accomplishments, a bench, a putting green. As I stood in front of the memorial, I considered how Maiden represented the intersection of immigrant and athlete, how the popularity of golf pushed him from his home in Scotland and pulled him to the United States, specifically Atlanta. The 1880s did not just see the growth of golf in America, but also the start of the rebuild of Atlanta following the Civil War. It was in the 1880s that the population of Atlanta surpassed that of Savannah. In the early 20th century, streetcars became popular as what would become the Atlanta sprawl of today began allowing the Eastlake community to be built and thrive. It was into this world that Stuart Maiden stepped, and it would be his training of Bobby Jones that would help put Atlanta on the map as one of the top places for golf in the United States. And yet for all that, Maiden died in many ways alone, a man who helped put Atlanta on the map resting in an unmarked grave. A few short years after World War I and after Maiden left Atlanta, a baby girl was born that would also one day join him in perpetual rest in Eastview. She is not famous or well-known. The odds that any of you recognize her name is practically nil. In life, she grew up a few miles down the road from the cemetery. But what piqued my interest about Dorothy Marie Reynolds, born May 8, 1922, and died September 26, 1951, is that her headstone says she died while, quote, serving her country. It is to Dorothy Marie, who went by Marie, that we now turn. I will be completely transparent and admit that my assumption was that Marie died during the conflict in Korea. In my head, she was a member of a hospital unit that those of us of a certain age are familiar with from the movie or show MASH. They were attacked and she died. I was wrong. My guess was actually pretty off. But what Marie's life provides us with is a window into the lives of women who served in the armed forces starting with World War II. For levels of research, Stewart's life was the easiest, as he's important in the world of sports. There are even videos of him practicing his swing, and you'll find them linked on our website. Next, though, was Marie, for whom I turned to Ancestry.com to try and piece together what I could. After I realized that I was misspelling Marie's legal first name, I was typing it into Ancestry.com as D-O-R-O-T-H-Y, and not how it was actually spelled, D-O-R-T-H-E-Y, it was incredibly easy to piece out the outlines of her life from available legal documents. I would not say more than the outline, although when I stumbled upon a family tree created by a cousin, it helped connect even more dots. Marie was born in 1922 in Atlanta. As per the 1930 census, she was living with her mother, Esther, and her father, Alan. Alan, at only 31 years old, was considerably younger than Esther, who was listed as 45. Alan worked as a plumber, and Esther was not employed. Marie was in school. Esther's oldest daughter from her first marriage, Zelma, who was 28, lived with them in this 1930 census. Zelma worked for the railroad, and the family shared a house with a young married couple who both worked, one for the railroad and one for public utilities company. They lived at 39 Kirkwood Road, which is about a mile from Eastview Cemetery, but the family home is no longer standing as a new build went up in 2013. Marie's listed as in school, and all of them can read and write. But for Marie, life changed dramatically in the 10 years between the 1930 and 1940 census. This marriage to Alan was Esther's second marriage, as noted above. Her first husband seems to have embraced serial monogamy, and Esther, who went by the name Lula, was the first of five wives. Between 1902 and 1909, Esther and her first husband had four children, two boys and two girls. In 1910, Esther, now recorded as Esty, 
And are you seeing how it might be hard to trace different families through the census reports as they change their names or spelling changes or the census taker misspells a name? And so, regardless, in 1910, Esther, now recorded as Esty, was still living with her first husband and children in Atlanta. By 1930, the census in which we find our Marie, three of Esther's children with her first husband are married, and it's only Zelma who's single and living with her mom. By the 1940 census, it is only Esther and Marie who are still living together. Esther and Alan divorced around 1936, and in 1940, Esther and 17-year-old Marie are living at 1242 Arkwright Place near Reynoldstown in Atlanta. The house was built in 1920, and it still stands. They again shared a house, this time with a family with two elementary-aged children. Esther is listed as working in a laboratory for beauty products, and Marie is working as a cashier at a restaurant, and her highest level of education was one year of high school. On the same form, it says that Esther's highest level of education was eighth grade. What could not be known in the 1940 census, where Marie and Esther are living together, is that Esther would die at age 57 in 1941, leaving Marie without a mother. It seems that after Esther died, Marie married and divorced rather quickly. Unfortunately, there are no known records of this, but as of the 1940 census, Marie is listed as single, and as of her enlistment in the Army in January 1944, she describes herself as divorced, and her death certificate also lists her as divorced. So sometime between 1940 and 1944, Marie married and divorced. In 1944, Marie enlisted as one of the Women Army Corps, or a WAC. So who or what were the WACs? Based on similar units in Britain, the WACs were women, at the time up to 150,000 of them, hired by the Army to fulfill various roles. Although their hand guides said the ultimate goal of their service was to be ready to replace men at any given time. When Marie signed on, her term of service was for six months, or the duration of the war. Marie stayed with the military for seven years until her death. She stated on her enlistment forms that she was a sales clerk with now two years of high school education, and it is with this document that the spelling of her legal first name shifts, because instead of the D-O-R-T-H-E-Y of the census records and of her tombstone, the Army lists her as D-O-R-O-T-H-Y. Her death certificate from Texas also has this spelling. While working at Lackland Air Force Base in Texas, Marie died on September 26, 1951, age 29, from acute hemorrhagic pancreatitis brought on by pulmonary edema. It was six days from the onset of her symptoms until her death, and she died at the Air Force Hospital. Lackland Air Force Base, which was created in 1941 and renamed in 1948, had grown considerably during the Korean War, and it was during this war that I assumed that Marie had died in Korea. When Marie died, the base numbers far exceeded what was comfortable. After her death, her father brought her back to Atlanta and interned her at Eastview Cemetery in the Reynolds family section. On her tombstone, he wanted everyone to know that his daughter died while serving her country, and it is that detail, etched on her tombstone, that piqued my interest as mentioned above. It drew my attention to Marie, and that is what her family wanted. They wanted us to know that Dorothy Marie Reynolds served her country in the armed forces and died while in that service. The final person I want to dwell on is also because of the inscription that his parents chose for his headstone, which simply states, Grover Eugene Sanders, July 24, 1934, killed September 10, 1946, killed. The parents of Eugene, as they called him, wanted us to know that their 12-year-old son was killed. He rests next to his parents, who died roughly half a century later, and an infant brother was born and died in the late 1930s, not living long enough to be recorded on any census. 
In Eastview Cemetery, this terminology, though blunt, did not initially stand out to me. Throughout the cemetery are young men who died serving in World War II. For example, along one main path is the headstone for two brothers to commemorate them as their bodies were lost at sea serving in the Pacific Theater. But what gave me pause was that Eugene was only 12 when he died, and the war was over. Killed, also, was not a common term for one who died so young. A teenage girl's grave included a verse on how she would rise and dance one day. Multiple infant graves at Eastview Cemetery include a variation on the idea that they were a bud planted in the ground that would bloom in heaven. Killed on a tombstone stood out. So what had happened to him? My investigation into Eugene's death was the most time-consuming, but also the best reminder that while the internet is grand, it does not always hold the answer. I googled Grover Eugene Sanders while standing in front of his tombstone and came up short. There were no answers. I soon learned that Georgia has a pretty firm lock on its death certificates, unlike, say, Texas, where Dorothy Marie Reynolds passed away. And all I could learn from my search of Ancestry.com, I'm beginning to sound like an ad for this website. We've received no kickbacks here, I assure you. So all I learned from my search of Ancestry.com was that he had died in Fulton County, which is where Atlanta is located. From an online search of Eastview Cemetery, I was able to identify others with the last name Sanders also buried there, including his parents and brother. It was with the 1940 census that I was able to start learning more about Eugene. It was there that I learned, for instance, that he didn't go by Grover. I also learned that his family lived in Cabbage Town, a small neighborhood in Atlanta, and that his father worked for a mill there. Or should I say, THE mill. The Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill, founded in 1868 by Jacob Elsis, a German-Jewish immigrant. 1868 was also the beginning of Reconstruction, a period following the Civil War in which the United States focused on rebuilding the South. Elsis, with his mill, was part of this initiative, which would put a new industrial face, it was hoped, on the largely agricultural South. Efforts by workers to improve their conditions, to unionize, or to resist the hiring of African-American women, would cause periodic shutdowns of this mill over the next few decades. Elsis also helped found Georgia Tech, and it was at this mill that Eugene's father, Richard, worked. According to the 1940 census, he was employed as a doffer, meaning he removed bobbins, pins, or spindles holding spun fiber. This would have been a job most likely familiar to Richard, who, according to World War I draft materials, had worked in a factory at least since age 18 in the more rural Hart County, Georgia. The Fulton Bag and Cotton Mill would close in 1968 as factory jobs moved out of Atlanta, and the mill that Eugene grew up by and that has kept his family has been repurposed as lofts. The house he lived in on Carroll Street, however, is still there. In the 1940 census, the Sanders family lived in a small house with his parents, two living brothers, and one sister. He and his brothers attended school. By the time he died, Eugene's oldest brother had served in the army. So how was Eugene killed? Multiple theories crowded my mind. Was he working at the mill by age 12 and there was an accident? Trolleys were popular. Could it have been a trolley accident? Not only are death certificates not easily available in Georgia, but none of the main newspapers of Atlanta for the 1940s, which would have been either the Journal or the Constitution because they hadn't yet joined, neither of them were online. The mill records are kept by Georgia Tech, but when I first contacted them, many of the documents for the chronological period I was interested in were listed as restricted. I contacted the Georgia State Archives, and they told me to contact Georgia Tech. I explained to the archivist at the State Archives the conundrum with how the documents at Georgia Tech were restricted, but then I determined to head to the Atlanta Fulton Library and check the papers. The Ivan Allen Jr. floor of the Atlanta Fulton Public Library 
contains cabinets full of newspapers and journals on microfilm. I hadn't used a microfiche reader in at least a decade. But Kathy, the librarian, kindly reminded me how to use the machines, and there I sat with spools of the Atlantic Journal and the Atlantic Constitution, still two separate papers as I mentioned, from the week of September 8, 1946. And it was there that I learned how Eugene died. Walking home from school in Grant Park, he and his two friends tried to catch a ride on a slow-moving truck that was going through traffic. Eugene slipped and was crushed under the tires. The truck driver didn't even know it happened. He continued to drive on until another driver who had witnessed the accident caught up to him and told him what had happened. The truck driver returned and was arrested by the police. In the papers, we see a picture of Eugene and learn that his funeral is going to be at a Friendship Baptist Church, and then he'll be interred at Eastview Cemetery. His family was also at a different address than the 1940 census, just a few house numbers away. I googled the church, and I found a historically black Baptist church by the same name a few miles from where Eugene had lived. I found it hard to believe that in 1946, Eugene was buried at a historically black Baptist church, but the internet told me that was it. I wondered if the church could have changed names. Again, this is a moment where legwork and going beyond the internet helped. Public historian Linda Schwartz Wyatt, who had lived in Cabbage Town for a few months, told me that there's a Friendship Baptist Church that was open in the neighborhood. A few weeks later, yes, this podcast was a multi-month investigation. A few weeks later, Linda texted me a photo of the church and the address. With almost no internet presence beyond a Facebook page, the church Eugene and his family had attended 70 years ago is still here serving its flock. I visited Eugene's neighborhood twice. The first time, I brought my toddler. We parked a few blocks from Carrollton Street and walked to where Eugene had lived in the 1940 census. We then walked the few houses over to where he lived when he had died. The 1946 house was larger. I wondered if by then Eugene's dad had been given a promotion, if his mom had begun to work when his younger sister started school. The family that lived in Eugene's 1946 house, but for the 1940 census, had both parents working while their 12-year-old was in school, so... It didn't seem out of the norm that Eugene's mom might have gone to work. My youngest and I ate lunch at the Carolyn Cafe across the street from both of Eugene's houses. I'm sure people around me judged as I searched on my phone to determine if there were any other locations I should visit, and my daughter played with dinosaurs she had brought in her purse. What most affected me from visiting where Eugene had lived was that from the sidewalk, you can see both the mill where his dad worked and the Oakland Cemetery. But the cemetery had stopped taking new purchases, which is why Eugene rests a few miles away in Eastview. Later, when I learned where Eugene had died, I realized that it was possible that his parents, and again I pictured his mom waiting at home for the children to return from school, that his mom or dad could have stood in front of the house and witnessed the commotion a block or so over, but not realized who or what it involved. A few weeks later, I drove through to see Friendship Baptist Church, which is only a few blocks from Eugene's house as well. My two older daughters and I then drove down to Memorial Drive to Eastview Cemetery, following what was most likely Eugene's final route as well, where he joined his infant brother and his maternal grandfather passed away in 1942 and is buried nearby. Killed. I now knew how Eugene died, but the use of the word killed was not fully explained. It sounded like an accident. Only one article mentioned the truck driver's arrest, and it was not hard to assume, since I couldn't find any further information when I searched the driver's name in databases. 
that the driver had been released and Eugene's death had been ruled an accident. I could see his parents being upset with this and refusing to accept that there was no one to blame for their son's death. And so, it seems, they wanted to make sure that anyone who visited their son's grave knew that they believed their beloved boy to have been killed. Unfortunately, the articles in Eugene's death are short. Other events, including a plane crash, took place that week in Georgia. A young boy killed in an accident was not front-page news, although it did make the second page of the Atlanta Constitution the day after he died, along with the picture of the young lad. But his parents wanted us to remember that they believed their son was taken from them, so that's what they had etched on his tombstone. Three graves. Three stories about life in Atlanta in the first half of the 20th century. An immigrant who came here to teach golf and help teach one of the most famous players of this game. But this man, arguably the most well-known person in this episode, rests in an unmarked grave. Our next two stories were not about people who are wealthy, but each is buried in a grave with a headstone that their families planned. A woman raised by a single mom and who had joined the Army during World War II as a member of the Women's Army Corps, an experimental auxiliary force, only to make a career out of it. A young boy raised in the shadow of one of Atlanta's most famous mills, only to die walking home from school. All of these stories add to what we know about Atlanta and the United States in the 20th century. Some are stories that only came to light because of an afternoon walk in a local cemetery. What will you find if you take one in your local cemetery? This has been Footnoting History. If you like the podcast, be sure to visit our website, footnotinghistory.com, where you can find links to further reading suggestions related to this week's episode, as well as a calendar of upcoming podcasts. You can also like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at History Footnote. Until next time, remember, the best stories are always in the footnotes.